Welcome everyone to the Lighter Mind Podcast. In the Lighter Mind, we explore spirituality, personal growth, trauma, recovery, and the path to wholeness. The Lighter Mind Podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any forms of mental illness. We are not licensed therapists unless otherwise noted, and these are experiential conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Lighter Mind Podcast. I am sitting here with Alan and Crow, and we are going to continue on with some stories. And so the the last couple of episodes, we were dealing with my story, and then we did some, we had some feedback from Alan and Crow on our bonus episode, episode 6.1. And today, it looks like Mr. Crow is about ready to tell his story. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Well, yeah. Are we we ready? I think we're about ready. Alan, do you have anything? I'm good. Good. I think I think it's the floor is yours. Man, I'm going to try to tell this. I have never told my story all the way through. It's a long one. Um, but it's but it's relative in the sense that uh, the listeners may have to stay with me a while, Kyle, because <laughs> uh um uh, hopefully make some sense of this when I get uh, Towards the end of it, and we'll see we'll see uh, how this journey goes. Because uh, again, I've never really had to sit. I had to sit down and write this out, and so I wrote it by year. That's about as you know, or by decade. That's about as best as I could do at this point. But um, I was born in '63, <clears throat> 1963, and uh, my father was Air Force. My mother was English. He was stationed. In England at the time, in Essex, England, Mildenhall uh, Air Force Base. So I was born there, actually right off the base per mom's request so that we would uh, be subjects of the British crown, I guess you could say. I lived there for about a year, and then my father was transferred to Cheyenne, Wyoming. That would have been about 1964. Um... Something that uh, that was sort of pieced together for me, and many years later, as an adult, I had a lot of uh, aunts and, and sisters that kind of pieced this together. Uh, but in those years, it turned out that I was the youngest of five kids. And uh, by the time that my mom um, was... Uh, done with all five of us, birthing all five of us. She was only 23 years old, uh, which is pretty young to be having a family of five kids. And, you know, that's what my father wanted was a big farm family. Um, And uh, so anyway, um, we lived in Torrington, Wyoming, where my father was stationed. And um, they were divorced within a couple of years, so I was age three by that time. When they were divorced, my father doing what was best uh, for his career in the military um, was to, you have to understand what was going on in the world at that time, and that was at the outbreak of Vietnam and and uh, the Asian conflict. So my dad only knew how to 
take care of us. And he said, well, I've got to be a military guy, and that means i got to go overseas. Well, Mom was out of the picture. She had uh, totally left and never returned. Uh, I'm three years old. My brothers and sisters are all older than me. They do remember Mom quite well. They're seven, eight, nine years old. Um, at that time, they were taken to an orphanage in Torrington, Wyoming. And I was too young to enter into that. They wouldn't take a three-year-old. So they told my father that he had to find another home for a year or two uh, before I came of age. So he, I was sent to relatives of his cousins up in Minnesota to live with them for a year uh, when they were a newly married couple. And uh, they took, took me in, and I lived there on a lake with them for approximately a year. And a wonderful couple, my father's cousin, Gene. And uh, after about a year, they said, Joe, they, they let him know, you, you got to do something with Chris because we want our own family. So um, I was then taken over to his sister's in Grand Forks, North Dakota, where her husband was stationed. So I moved there. Um, and it's there that I turned four years old. I do remember that. And uh, my father was still overseas in Thailand, um, where all the Air Force bases were at that time. And, and now, mind you, during this time, I had never met my, my brothers and sisters. I didn't know them. And I do remember when he finally did come home, uh, <laughs> grabbed my brothers and sisters and they walked through the door and I remember meeting them for the first time and this being a big, you know, introduction. And I said, well, my first question was, what do they do? What do brothers and sisters do? I, you know, and I, I was trying to ask all the big questions in life, like what is a mom and what is a dad? And I know my dad is, uh, going to come back. I'm not sure where mom is is and I don't have one so um at any rate um long story short to that is that I finally did meet them and we were rejoined and taken back to the orphanage I so there the five of us children lived together but now they're older um one brother um and three sisters they lived on different floors of this big home so I didn't live with them, and they lived in what was called junior boys, senior girls, senior girls, uh, junior girls, and they lived on a whole different floor and lived a whole different life than I did, and I was taken in at that time by a nun that watched all of us little ones uh, together. We lived in a big dormer, dormitory, and... Uh, uh, her name was Sister Charentine, and that was uh, the first time that I had ever really felt like, wow, this must be what love is like. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is great. And I, you know, you don't get all the attention that you want, all the one-on-one, -on -one, but I do remember feeling the sense of belongingness right there for the first time. And that was pretty awesome. Um, and... Um, my father did return from Thailand, um, 
And uh, I, I, okay, in that orphanage, I lived there for probably, I want to say two, three years. So by this time, I'm, I'm seven years old. Um, now that puts us, yeah, six, seven years old. Um, dad returns and then he is now stationed stateside and we go to Indiana. And in Indiana, it was at Grissom Air Force Base, which is now closed. Uh, I was in, I spent my second grade there. And I don't remember much about my schooling there. Um, just, I remember that it was a very tough time at home because it's the first time the, the, the brothers and sisters had to live together. And uh, I do remember a lot of aggression and a lot of angst. And so by that time, it's 1967 to 68, 69. And I just remember a lot of tension in that household and a lot of arguments and a lot of fights. And when I'm saying fights, I remember there was, there was <laughs> blood. Um, so much to the point where dad had to be called home from work to, uh, to intervene. So I could see as I looked back on those years, that's not quite normal for a brother and sister's, um, uh, way to handle. But, but I could definitely see it as I look back on those years that that's some serious trauma starting to unfold and, and happen. Um, so we lived there in Grissom Air Force Base for one year through my second, second grade. And, um, my dad would fly out to his sister's, uh, sister's home by this time. She was with her husband who was now stationed in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And as he would fly out and visit his sister, he met through there a mutual friend and he named Sharon and he fell in love and they would make, you know, occasional trips back to Colorado Springs to see sister and to visit this woman. Well, they fell in love and it just so happened that this woman was uh, widowed with five children. Um, so here he is alone, five children, and, and uh, she's alone with, with five children. So, and of course, that's through the 70s. They fell in love. Long story short, in 1970, they were married, uh, built a house on the northern edge of uh, Colorado Springs at that time, which is now in the middle of pretty much the north end of Colorado Springs, uh, not that far out there. Um, but um, there, the 10 of us now grew up together. So there's 10 of us in a house. And at that time through the 70s, the big joke was, oh, the Brady Bunch. Yeah. You know, and it really, really was. And I hated that. I just despised that because I thought that was the cheesiest, you know, uh, um, sort of description of our household. But it really was the, the, the true case of the, the five, five and five family coming together. And they had... A perfect, they had um, three boys and two girls, and our family had three girls and two boys. So now you've got five boys, five girls, and all within a relatively same close age um, in, in proximity. Um, put it this way, as we all graduated from District 
20 in pretty much Air Academy High School, we all graduated together in, in, through a, a span of about nine years, hmm. which is very, very short. So it's not like you have a large family where one is like a, you know, an uncle or something like that. We were very, very close in age. And there was a lot of tension in that household, and yet there was also a lot of friendships that, that developed. I lived um, very vicariously um, the entire time. Through all of these different environments that I lived in, through all of these different places I was taken, uh, with or without parents, with or without sort of guidance uh, at any given time, I always seem to have this sense of vicariousness, of living through the brothers and sisters and learning what what to do and what not to do. Um, so, um, when I was in high school, by the time that I really reached my informative high school years, it was very, very challenging because now by this time, um, my relationship, I guess you could say, with my stepmother um, was very respectful, incredibly respectful. Um, and she was a school teacher. And that was pretty much at odds with Little Crow. <laughs> to say the least, I, in those years, uh, and really all my, my informative years, I guess you could say I was, I, I'm the perfect candidate for uh, alternative schooling, which didn't exist in those days. It's too bad. I was, I was ahead of my time, really, guys. Uh, I, and I, I, sh I would have been the perfect candidate, but there was no such thing. Either you made it or you, you, you didn't. And I didn't. And I was a C student at best. And more often than not, I, I hung in the Ds. Now, mind you, all this time, too, I was so respectful. There would be no way, like some of the older brothers and sisters, that I ever stepped out of line, stepped out of... I minded my boundaries, and those were very, very curtailed and kept within that um, the sphere of what I, I could not do. Let's put it that way. It was not what I could do and a uh, step outside that. It was more or less, I, I lived very much within that reign. Um, but again, I, I was, it was a challenging, challenging time for me because um, um, the stepmother was very, very strict to me. She wanted the best for me with the greatest of intentions, but it was a very difficult time for her as well. You got to imagine she was pretty much the the uh, heavy hand of the house. Uh, my dad, being very quiet in nature, very quiet. She was the voice and the very much the the disciplinarian. And uh, so it it was very tough for her as well as the fact that both of them worked. Uh, by this time, my father was retired. Um, his last post, of course, years through the 70s was at Ent Air Force Base here in Colorado Springs. But they both worked, 
and Sharon was a school teacher to make matters worse. So <laughs> she's a school instructor and I'm the worst kid in the world, but as far as school went. Now, um, this, this put me through to my graduating years of which I just, uh, um, it, again, it was very, very tough. And as the older brothers left the house, brothers and sisters left the house, I felt as though my buffer of protection had gone down. So with that, I really didn't have anybody distracting her from me. And I was almost like spotlighted. And uh, my way of defense was to shut down, was to really clam up, keep quiet, and do not um, argue back. There was just no way for that. Um, and so it was really, I learned to escape. And it was where, that was really, really, I think, where I saw in a visible outward way of learning to really run and escape from, from uh, myself. And uh, um, it, at, that, at that time, now, as I got into my graduating year, I graduated in 81 from Air Academy, and I only had one younger sister left in the house. The rest had all flown the coop. And, uh, and here it was in 1981, and I pretty much split the minute that I could, the minute that I could, and I got out um, of that house, and I say got out, it's almost like I broke free because really, really who I wanted to be, who I knew I was, could become everything else was absolutely not it uh, living there. So in 81, I, I, or 82, I want to say, I actually left home. I was about 17 by that time. And uh, that was where I lived with a brother downtown, Colorado Springs. And from there on, it was like I, I tr started to reach out and really find myself. And I started to do community theater at that time. Um, and I was very, very involved with, with uh, theater works and, and, and uh, in, here in, in town. And star bar players at that time and and uh also from there i met another group of guys and and formed a band uh in the through the the 80s that band was the auto no and uh i was the lead singer of that band and uh that gave me a way that gave me permission there guys now I was on my own to just totally go nuts and express myself. And theater, I felt, was another way to try to find myself through sort of a, a existentialist way of adopting different characters and different personae. But being in the band and being the lead singer, I could really go nuts. And I did. And it was great. Now, mind you, all that time of all that touring, all that playing, performing, late nights in bars, the, the lifestyle that comes with being in a band that was semi-professional, yada, yada, I never drank. Never drank once. 
never used any drugs hmm. because I wanted to, uh, I never wanted to lose a sense of myself. I never wanted to lose control. And I always wanted to stay in control. And I thought that was the most important mm. part. Mm. So now it's in the 90s. Uh, and in that band, I had met a gal. And uh, we um, moved to Denver by this time. Uh, the band kept going. I had departed the band. And I had moved with this gal to Denver by this time. Now it's, we're talking about the 1990s, and through then, I started to get serious about life and really like, okay, now, and we got married in 93, and um, we, we started to, I started to get the nesting instinct, and like, oh, well, this is real, and I can't be, you know, a child anymore, and I've got to take on real responsibility. I got a job and I had a really great run at that time working for Anheuser-Busch in Denver. Budweiser, yeah, where they give you beer. Um, and never once did I drink any of it. I gave it all away. This is interesting to know, yeah. okay, because by this time, I'm in my 20s, through my 20s, in, into my, well into my 30s, and never once had I drank any, any beer and I still couldn't do drugs because I drove a truck, mm -hmm. which you were always tested, and uh, we were Teamsters, and there's just no possible way. That was out of the realm, which was great for me because it, it kept me on the straight and narrow. Well, we, uh, my wife and I, we, we, at that time, we wanted to have a family, and uh, we uh, decided to adopt so we adopted a daughter from China, and uh, which was a beautiful little thing. Um, and we named Livy. Uh, we named her Livy, and um, we adopted her in '91. Um, and it was actually in. Uh, no, that's not true. It was 99. <laughs> I stand corrected on this. I have to think about that one for a second <laughs> because she was born in 99. We adopted her. And it was uh, when she was a year later, after one year, we decided to move to a place that we had visited all the time. Uh, so we lived there for a stretch of 10 years. Now, mind you, in all those 10 years of driving for Budweiser and loving that lifestyle, loving who I was, um, driving all over Denver, that was my persona. That was, I mean, I'm the, being the Bud man, come on, what fun. Um, but never, never partaking and uh, being responsible, always being responsible. And so... In the year 2000, we decided to move, and we moved up, rooted, sold the house, and we moved to uh, Wisconsin with her brother, who uh, it seemed like the romantic life, the lifestyle that um, that we often visited, um, and uh, that was in the far, far north woods of Wisconsin, and uh, actually, it was in the middle of nowhere. So, and he, uh, he had dogs, dog sleds. 
So, and dog teams. And that's what he was doing, and that was sort of his profession and his his trade. And and uh, we decided to join him and help him. So we bought a property of his. We lived in the woods, and it was so far out in the woods that it was isolated. The closest neighbor to us was probably a couple of miles. And now what I'm talking about in relation to all of this is that we have just now, within the span of a year, moved from the inner city of Denver, Colorado, to the isolated north woods of Wisconsin. And it was at that time I was 37 years old and totally out of my element, totally completely out of my element. And this is the time, folks, at age 37, that I am totally suffering the identity crisis. Here I go. And I could not leave them. I could not leave myself. I could not, I could no longer run from, from my circumstances, situations, or events. And I had to find my best way that I knew, which was to escape. And there was nothing other than alcohol. I found beer for the first time and I, and I, I didn't like the taste of it. Didn't like the taste of alcohol at all, but I made my, I acquired the taste. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I acquired the taste because I liked the effect of what it did. And that was what I was after, was the escape and the element of total immersion into something other than myself. And that was where my situation really started. And I kept it hidden. You know, the typical stories of, you know, the long drive home from work, which should have taken, you know, 20 minutes. Um, No, this, instead of just a couple of road buddies, we're, you know, by the time we're said and done with this story, it was a 12 pack and it was a, a good hour and 20 minutes to get home from work. It was so you can imagine these stories extending and extending out. Did that for three years up there in northern, far northern Wisconsin. And through uh, contacts and relations of, of you know, meeting old friends and coming in in touch with old friends that got me in touch with a Budweiser distributor in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which was a little bit further south, but still northwest Wisconsin, much more populated, more into a city. Now I could, I could, I could handle that. So I got a job there again with a Budweiser distributorship because that's that's what I did. It's, it, that was my identity is I knew the beer industry and I knew how to sell beer and I knew how to deliver and I knew all the ins and outs of that trade. Um, so we moved, we relocated uh, to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. By this time, it's uh, 2003. And, uh, and uh, we lived there for... A good ele- I lived there for a good 11 years before moving. But in that three, in that 11 year span, many things also happened. Um, we divorced. My wife and I divorced. Um, 
and our daughter spent a great deal of time going back and forth between the houses, between mom and dad's house, which we had bought in relative close proximity for our daughter there in the town. Um, but that was also problematic because by that time, my drinking had become incredibly problematic very very problematic to the point that it was obvious and I would be on streaks and benders uh, for weeks on and then a week off um, and it was just hit or miss with what I would do my job performance was hit or miss um, but being in the old school of, of I guess the Midwest you know, I had a boss that, thank God, was just incredibly forgiving and uh, um, and understood the old school beer mentality. And it was just forgiveness after forgiveness uh, and not not letting me go. Well, finally, my wife and my daughter had uh, relocated. They moved to Des Moines, Iowa and left me there. And uh, they, they moved there. They relocated there to be closer to her family in Iowa, where she originally was from. And, and I, I, um, I stayed. I stayed. And I, by this time, things really spiraled because now I was alone. And right where I ultimately wanted my, myself, which was isolated and perfect, and I spent a great deal of time isolating myself even more from friends, uh, everybody that I could. When I wasn't at work, um, I broke off all contact and I would just pretty much close up and I had the perfect little world of uh, the alcoholic. And all the while not really addressing this issue, never addressing this issue because I just could not believe I had a problem. It's the typical standard, um, oh, I can stop whenever I want. But this continued. And um, in the year 2011, I guess it was, um, I came out to visit my, my family. Um, and uh, my family, I came out to visit my family here in Colorado Springs, my mother, my father, and, and all my brothers and sisters and their family. And um, we had, we were, we were having dinner and they said, uh, they mentioned to me, put the idea in my head at least, hey, have you ever thought about moving back to Colorado Springs? Uh, you need you need to be closer to the family, and mom and dad aren't getting any younger, and yada yada. And why are you even there when, you know, um, your daughter's not even there? And I said, you know, you you got a point here. And I went back home and played the game for another many many years. I played the game, and I continued to do this. Well. Um, I guess it was 2014, my boss finally came to me and said, all right, Crow, <laughs> enough's <laughs> enough. Um, what are you doing here? Yeah. Uh, what are you doing here? Your daughter's not even here. Why are you even here? You're here alone, and um, you sort of outrun your gamut, and you're, 
your list of uh, your of of you're outrunning your your extent of forgiveness with us, uh, and it was basically uh, don't make me fire you. Hmm is what I remember the exact words were. Don't make me fire you. Um, have you ever thought about moving home? You need to go. And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I have. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't know how to break the news to you. And he said, go now. And uh, with that, I pretty much did. I set the wheels in motion. And within probably three months, I had a big U-Haul packed with all my household belongings. I moved back to Colorado Springs. By this time, it was 2014. I lived with uh, uh, my sister at first and was was pretty good. I was pretty well contained, pretty well managed with my drinking and keeping it under wraps, yet, yet she understood as well as did her, her husband. She also but they were forgiving until the point came where I had to leave and, and just get out of that situation to where I lived with another buddy who you know very well now, uh, Alan, <laughs> and uh, his wife, and I lived with them for you know several months and uh, before finally just having to move out and I got an apartment on my own. Mm-hmm. And it was in that apartment that... Uh, that uh, I finally crashed. Mm. And how that crash came to me, I guess, was, was through a series of, of, again, isolated incidences. But one of them was that I had worked by this time for a brother-in-law of mine. And, and uh, he had a, a roofing company. And he still does. Uh, and Todd Reynolds is his name and, and uh, is a wonderful guy. And uh, he took me in and was going to train me to be one of his roofers. Well, finally it got to a point, it was off season and there wasn't much work and there was some days off. He finally just called me one day and he laid into me over the phone. Of course, by this time, I'm just taking every opportunity I can to isolate and just pass out night and day, night and day in my own little hovel of an apartment. Well, he finally called me one day and he laid into me and he, he said, you're stressing me out and you have more of a serious problem than you know, or that you've ever, ever realized. And your game is up. Basically you've outrun the gamut. And uh, he said, you need to go away and you need to get fixed. <laughs> Never forget that, how he put that. You need <laughs> to fix yourself. And he said, um, I'll take you back when you're, the, the time is right and you can come work for me, but I cannot have you on a roof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know your family too well, <laughs> and I cannot explain to them that you have fallen off because you, you're drunk. And, which makes total sense. Of course. And of course, what did I do once I hung up the phone with Todd? Is I, well, I continued to drink. And it was about a, a two-day stint, three-day stint, maybe four, I do not remember. 
of night and day, night and day, knocking myself out with, by this time, straight vodka. I was sitting on my couch when I just shot straight up on my couch. And I, just the first words off my lips were selfish. I, this is the best. And I, it was almost as if something spoke through me rather than me talking to myself. It was as if something had just sort of started <laughs> talking to me um, outside me. And it was just going, really? This is the crow. This is the best you can do. After all the experiences and all the wonderful uh, life lessons that you've you've gotten, this is it. To show for yourself is just sleeping on the couch for you know a week straight, and the time is right now. And I said, well, I thought to myself, well, I better think about picking up a the thousand pound phone and and making that first step. And I should probably do that tomorrow. And this voice said, no, now. Now was that moment. And uh, I picked up the phone, called one of my sisters, and uh, first question out of her mouth was, where are you? Are you at the police station? I said, no. She said, are you in the hospital? And I said, no. They knew real, everybody, everybody in my life by this time knew uh, just how bad I had gotten. I guess everybody knew but me, right? Or were, were willing to admit but me. And at that point, she said, uh, what do you want to do? That was all she said was, what do you want to do? And I said, well, if you're not busy today, could you take me to detox? And uh, she said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And I said, okay, but don't come in. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine this picture, guys, right? I said, don't come inside this apartment. Yeah. I mean, there's shades, uh, curtains, you know, blankets over my windows. There's, there's, you know, vodka bottles. And every surface is covered in six packs and, you know, empty beer bottles. And it's just a, a travesty. But it was me. And, and, uh. Probably just smelt like hell, too. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, she said, I'll stand outside the door and wait for you. So she arrived and took me to Detox, downtown Colorado Springs, which at that time was connected to county jail. Um, and thank God there was that facility. And it was, it was a hold, basically, just a 24-hour hold, or until you blow zeros and then they they turn you loose. Well, they didn't turn me loose for 48 hours because I had the shakes so bad. Mm. Now, let me preface this all also by saying that by the time that I finally sobered up, okay, I was 52 years old. So I had run my ABV, uh, not, not, not ABV. What's the word? My, my blood alcohol, mm. BAC. BAC, BAC, my BAC. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had run my BAC probably up to around the four. Oh, point four. buddy. Yeah. yeah. 0.4. Is that what it is? 0. 0.4? Yeah. 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 You're yeah. lucky to be alive. I yeah. was very lucky. But that was very, very normal. I, you know, that's where I cooked normally. 
so at age 52, that is not cool. Uh, it's not it's not good for anybody. But that was my kind of my my state of of existence at that time. So um, I was very lucky. I did not seize. And when I went into the center, they they tested me, and uh, the guard there at the door just freaked out. He said, holy cow. So anyway, um, I spent my day there, and immediately afterwards, I, I, I just got serious. And it was from that time on that I, I guess you, in that moment, there, there was a big moment that I had a real reckoning with myself on that cot, in that open <laughs> sort of detox room, which was the big, uh, the big hold. And, and next to me in that room is, of course, the, the homeless people that I had seen wandering the streets, the winos. The, and the gentleman next to me was, I realized, in an orange jumper and chained to the bed. Um, and I thought to myself, all right, this is the company I have placed myself in, and this is where I belong. I have done this to myself. I did this. And I had a, a moment there where I said, all right, I have but one prayer, God. <laughs> if, if you're there, don't, don't ever let me forget this moment. Because I did this. And I'm responsible regardless of the childhood, the, the bouncing around, the, the, uh, regardless of all of the traumas that I've ever faced or all the bad situations, I did this. I, I did my, I, these, this is the result of my decisions, poor decision making. Um, so I, I also in that moment, I realized I had my why to understand this and I also realized as much as I had my why and the sense of ownership I also understood I did not know how how to stop this how to get out of this bind that I had put myself in and what were what were the reasons for this and it was from that time on that I I went to AA, and I bellied right up to the table. This time, unlike years that I had dabbled with it up in Wisconsin, and I had toyed with the idea for about a week, and was a, you know, a good, good student, and yada yada, and they would say, "Ah, oh, yeah, bag that." Well, now I was ready. I was ready to hear, and I was ready to belly up to that table and really listen buckle down, get a sponsor, do what I was told because I had no idea and I was eager and ready. And I did get a sponsor and that sponsor leaned into me hard and I picked the worst one of the bunch. Let me tell you, <laughs> I picked the hard ass of them all. And this man leaned into me. He was uh, 35 years sober, older than me, and didn't put up with my shit. Mm. And uh, was ready to hold me, my feet to the fire. Uh, we did the step work. He told me to attend three meetings a day, which I did religiously for the, you know, two, three months into my, into my game. 
And I kept my circle not minimal, non-existent. It was AA. Um, it was my job, and then it was home. And right out of the gate, he gave me a number of instructions, and one was I'll attend three meetings a day. I will not speak, and I will not share. Uh, and the reason for that was that he said, you have nothing to teach anybody else, and I want you to start to learn to listen. To listen. Um, which was something that I was not fond or used to doing. And <laughs> it was to, to listen and to gain that education and that knowledge, and, and which I needed. He also told me to volunteer. I said, volunteer or what? He said, I don't care as long as you're moving outside of yourself. Do something for somebody else and quit thinking about yourself for a change. And it was then that I found this, uh, this clinic in downtown Colorado Springs called ESM. I had no idea what it was, what it meant. It stood for Ecumenical Social Ministries. Well, as I signed up to volunteer all eagerly, I thought I might be stuffing envelopes for the women at church or something. <laughs> I had no idea it was a homeless clinic and one of the largest in downtown Colorado Springs. And uh, that was where I, I really, my sobriety, I must say, took, took traction. That's where I it really took hold uh, because for the first time I could see um, I could see I could see real suffering that wasn't mine and I started to think with something that was my heart I guess you could say no, I guess, I, no, it's not I guess you could say. It absolutely, it absolutely was. I was thinking with my heart for the first time, and it really jarred loose a number of other experiences that I had um, through either dream work or through uh, meditation as I got better at that, and I could slow my mind down, and I, you know, I went through the stages that, that one normally goes through of going from the active mind to a slower mind to a quieter and stiller space. And I learned so much from those folks at ESM. I learned how, how outside themselves they were, that, that they, through all of their conditions, they were still giving and I realized that was the component in me that I, I wanted, that I needed. And uh, so I did that, and I, and I learned a tremendous amount from them and with them for two years. And I was hired on full-time, and I did not want to do that. And all the while, my buddy, my brother-in-law, Todd, was calling and staying in touch, saying, hey, it's been six months now, Crow. It's time for you to come back to the roofing company where you can make big money. And I said, no, Todd, a little more time, a little more time. And this is an interesting fact, too, because... I started to realize I don't think that the money in the six-figure, uh, the six-digit figure, um, 
career path is what I need to be following at this time of my life. And I, I stayed. And because I stayed, I uh, sort of gained friendships through a number of people at a church that I was involved with at that time, which is downtown in the Springs also, which is Grace and St. Stephen's. And in that church, I met a couple of new priests at that time who were incredibly instrumental in guiding me. And they were much younger. And ironically, when I met them, they were both had newly arrived with their families. And they were both 37 years old. And um, one from Berkeley. And that one in particular from Berkeley, California, and fresh from seminary, and very much into the mystical and into the, 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 oh boy, the theologia. And he took me sort of under his wing and uh, really guided me and counseled me and, and taught me a tremendous amount. And there I was also taught, uh, fortunately, through other um, people about monasticism um, through some scholars at Colorado College at that time also. So it was also through contacts at this church that I met a gentleman and, um, by the name of Jim, Jim Hinkle. And Jim wanted to, um, me to come be a sponsor for an organization of his, and that was called Tucor where I was, uh, he wanted me to sponsor um, and counsel teen at-risk youth. I said, uh, that's, that's crazy, because I know nothing about youth. And he said, well, you knew nothing about homeless. <laughs> so um, he said, you'll learn, and I will teach you. And, uh, of course, at that time, I ran to Alan, my, my buddy this entire time, who's going on the same journey uh, simultaneously, it seemed, um, of, of, of this sort of mind-expanding uh, uh, sobriety. And uh, I went to Alan and I said, there's just no way I can't be a counselor. And I remember Alan's words and his advice to me was, you need to start listening what others say about you rather than listening to yourself. And, and uh, I did. And I went and met these folks, and they hired me. And there I was for two years there as a at-risk youth counselor. Uh, in the meantime, I'm sure Alan will mentioned this and when we get to his story i dragged him into that for a good nine month stint or something like that yep until covid hit <laughs> until covid hit but that's where we remained and it was a it was a a good run and i'm glad that he took that journey with me as well yeah um and then covid did hit but prior to covid hitting i had met uh some really wonderful people that were through another friend of mine, a counselor at uh, Tucor, and uh, he worked in a recovery center. And we were having dinner one night, and he said, you should really come think about being a house manager 
at this recovery center. And I said, well, what the hell is a recovery center? Why didn't I ever know about these when I was sobering <laughs> up? I mean, I did it the old school way. What mm. the hell? And he said, no, they're, they're really a thing. And I said, well, it wouldn't have mattered anyhow because I didn't have insurance. And I, they, I don't think they were as pre, um, prevalent back in, in the day I was sobering up. By this time, it's a good six years into my sobriety. And uh, his name was Garrett and uh, Garrett Epler. And uh, Garrett said, "You I'll, let me introduce you to some people in my my work. So I said, well, you know, I kind of like the teens, and I'm not ready to leave the, the teens. But uh, um, I'll go and meet your people. I didn't see it as a job interview at all, but I guess they took it as one. <laughs> I was just there to hang out and meet his friends. And um, it was a job interview, I guess, because they had contacted me the minute that COVID hit. They out of the blue, and you talk about God shot after God shot happening here in my life and sobriety. That was another one where it, you know, one door closed and another one opened because the minute that we realized that Tucor was no longer gonna, the doors weren't gonna be open, uh, I received a call saying, hey, you know, we we want you over here as a house manager. And there I remained for one full year. And then uh, through a series of other friends and relations, Kyle Thistleway, <laughs> thank you, um, met you there. And then you put me in touch with Alex and all these wonderful folks up in in Monument to where I I reside today doing what I, I love. So now we're talking a good six and a half years into my sobriety and a, one long journey. And really the best way that I can surmise it all in my sobriety uh, is I really truly answered the call. I picked up the phone finally. At age 52, I finally picked up the phone and answered the call to the hero's journey. And uh, and it really began. And it, everything that Campbell describes uh, in the hero's journey is is pretty much textbook for my, my journey of sobriety, I guess you could say, because it is a never-ending cycle of where... <laughs> Uh, you know, where just a slight shift in perspective and doors will open. Is the way Campbell described that, and I quote. Um, and it's true, because it's just been a series of one door opening after another. And uh, that's, that's really where I go. And that's where I'm at today. And, uh, and, uh, that is that is my story. So I, I guess in 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 short, where I had to really go with my sponsor and in that step work, um, and here is the crux is I had to go, and this is to our listeners, why it was so imperative that I dragged you on such this this long narrative, this long story, and not highlighting um, war storing of my high school party years because there were none. They were non-existent. 
or my war stories of the partying and getting drunk and falling down in my band years because there were none. I took care of that for you. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Alan handled it Jump, all. Jumped on the grenade. <laughs> That's right. I took the bullet, man. You did. And I looked vicariously through you and thought, hell no, I'm not doing that. Um, because uh, he's going to be puking all day for the next several days. And I just wouldn't, I, I, it just wasn't me. And I would lose control. Um, and I, and I always did manage to keep control. The whole point to this journey is that I didn't start drinking until I was 37. But when I did, I finally gave her a good run. I gave a hell of a squeeze out of it, though, guys. I really did. And I played cat and mouse with this shit yeah. for way too long, I think. And with my sponsor, I sat down and started really going in to the deep work and I had to go even further um, through meditative practices of many different kinds and going back into my childhood and looking at all these experiences of what shaped my habits and my patterns and for me it was escape, 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 escape the entire time and I I know where it began to sort of shield myself from that. There's abandonment issues. This story is rife with abandonment issues, right? I mean, I remember being in, in the orphanage, waking up and saying, huh, I have no mom, and I'm not sure if dad is around, and I don't know where brothers and sisters are. I don't really have anybody, and I'm good with that. I have no family, and I'm okay. Now, a normal five-year-old does not say these sort of things, so I had to go back into this little boy, Crow, and really resurface and relive into all of these things so that I can make sense of this at age 52 and go, now I understand where the patterns and the habits develop. That doesn't mean I'm living in it. doesn't mean I'm living in the pain. It means that I have to understand where it, 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 it's, it began and how it still plays out today, even in sober grow. So this is, this is the work that we have to do. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people, they can, they can easily trace this. They can easily trace their habits of, oh, it started in high school. You know, I started acting out. Uh, Kyle, I know your story is very, very typical. Mm -hmm. It's normal. I yeah. wish I would have had that. I wish I would have had unruly high school years. Unfortunately, I was very, very afraid to do any of that. In my house, you did not do that. I had uh, a, a, a stepmother that would not even think to allow that, and my father was the silent enforcer that had anything gotten past her, he would have been there as the total enforcer. And I knew that you just didn't go there. So um, there was some serious boundaries going on in my entire life that either were placed on me or I put on myself. Once those, those inhibitors, and I have moved away from all those inhibitors, 
I still had a belief system that placed them there for me. And this is important because of what our inhibiting beliefs, our belief systems, and getting to the, the fundamental root of all of that speaks into our addictions. And how this work is so imperative that we do this in sobriety to understand where it begins and how it looks. Because I guarantee you, it's not always just gone the moment you sober up or the moment you're wishing or working towards sobriety of any long term. I mean, if we don't get to the bottom of this in any meaningful, painful way and uh, uproot those, those belief systems, then you, that's, that, I think, would be the difference between abstinence and sobriety, long-term sobriety. Mm -hmm. And this is where the confusion comes in. Abstinence is sitting on your hands wishfully thinking uh, the problem away, but long-term sobriety is rolling your sleeves up, doing the real painful work, and that's going to require um, therapy. It's going to require really going and stepping back into the beginning of as far back as you can remember as to where those patterns and habits um, and routines started within you. And that, this is the important thing of my story that I wanted to point out to all of our listeners. And uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, man. Well, thank you so much, Crow. Yeah, sorry about the dogs barking and the phone ringing. So, I had I had the so I had the ringer off and the volume down, but my mom that was my mom calling, and she's an emergency. She's great, but that's an emergency contact, so it overrides all of that. So I was like, why is the phone ringing? Oh, oh man. So and. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so that, uh, I apologize. No worries, no worries. Okay, so I think we, um, we, we got a few minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, let's... So I have, I have a fantastic story, by the way. And there's, I, lear I learned quite, quite a bit from you that I actually did not know. I'm looking forward to listening to it since I missed part of it going in and out. <laughs> it's a, um... So, so since we're already, we, we just finished the end, I wanted to kind of bring up something that I wrote down, and what does your, so it looks like a lot of your program in sobriety is based around helping other people, but what does the rest of, like, your maintenance look like right now? Like, what is that, like, because I know that I had talked about how it's different for each person, what does Crow's maintenance look like right now? Oh, that's a great question because it, it, number one, it evolves around service. Service. Um, it, it, it is always being, first and foremost, um, in the line of service of others, um, which, which, you know, for any, anybody in, in, this line of work that we do, and you guys understand this, is that it, it, it not only inspires compassion, but it demands it of us. And it, it, it requires that we have, if not, you know, inhabit that space continually, 
that we work towards that, and that's selflessness. And uh, that's the important piece. There's always, it's not about me. It's not about me. That's my motto. And it's just not about you, Crow. Yeah. There's more. And um, and if, if I'm getting into a space where I'm starting to wrap myself too closely to my own opinions, bad place to be. Because that's going to inspire nothing but you know, resentments and expectation and the whole nine yards. And there's a great deal of the basics, the basic rule of life and the basic um, simplistic pattern of what I did learn in my first original program, which was, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's very, very simple. It's very laid out, whether you agree with that program or not. Uh, NACA, all of them are just awesome. I love every bit of it. Because there's something there that you can take. Um, but mine's very, very simple. And uh, that's, it, it stays simple. Keep it simple. I, my, my sponsor taught me right out of the gate, keep this very simple so that you can live by a code of that simplicity. If it gets outside of that, you're, you're losing sight yeah. of what's important. Yeah, So for sure. But service number one. Yeah, I can, def I can definitely tell, hearing your story, I mean, especially when you started getting sober, it sounds like you had, you had fallen into service work very, very early and you haven't stopped. You would start working with homeless and you would start, you know, you had started in the program and everything and you haven't stopped working with other people. Yeah, and I, I think with that, what you're alluding to, Kyle, which is also very, very extremely important, probably for me goes hand in hand with services purpose. I, you know, some say, well, that sounds like it's your calling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is my calling. Mm -hmm. It is my sense of, it, it, it's where I it's re, it's reciprocal and I have a sense of purpose and meaning meaning um, and that's what gives it meaning to me life meaning for sure is um, is and, and purpose and gives me a sense to latch onto and identify with um, it keeps me rooted is in that line of service that's excellent. That's that's awesome to hear. Um, so I have got some notes here of things that I had kind of picked up on, and I have some questions. So I did notice, so you're, I picked up on the abandonment stuff very early. Ooh, Because yeah. that, that's something that I can definitely relate to. And it sounds like you had, there was a lot of, there was a lot of moving around, a lot of moving pieces, when especially in your first like ten years of life, and um, that had to have been discombobulating for a kid, for number one. And it does sound like, especially with all of the 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 crazy. Keep 
keep going. Sorry. All right, you're good. <laughs> um, and it does sound like your um, early fi family dynamics ended up almost, what, was it a, did you feel like you needed to struggle for attention when you were younger with like, with, you know, living in a household with 10 people? Uh, no, in response to your, that, that's a great question. Was I looking, what you mean when I was in a house of 10 kids now, mm -hmm. I was the second of the youngest. I had my stepsister, uh, Kathy is the only one younger than me. And, uh, the answer was definitely a big fat. No, I did not want attention. I did not. And I think the reason is, is that I wanted to simply be left alone. And it's very, very curious and a great question because I had to understand this as well and look at uh, little me um, in my sobriety and say why. And I think the answer was um, always, always wanting to go within me and be left alone to find me. Mm -hmm. Sort of like even as a, as a, from an early age, I can remember such striking moments, even at the orphanage, and then um, not too many in Indiana. Um, but but really, there, um, and even earlier in Grand Forks, North Dakota, where I was asking big questions about myself in relation to, you know, I, I, my, I'll repeat that, myself in relation to the world, where am I, what are the descriptions, and then who am I almost within that. And I, I was asking existential questions that are very early age trying to find what was myself in relation to so definitely when I got into this busy household of, you know, 10 kids, I just basically wanted to, you know, be, be myself and find myself. And I can remember the third grade as, um, you know, finding where I was in friends and, uh, you know, that community slowly, very slowly. Um, and then sort of, but no, 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 I was not an attention seeker because I knew I was afraid of it in our household, household. I, I, I was, I was almost afraid of attention. Yes. You don't want to get too much. You don't want to mm -hmm. be the guy that I left that to the older brothers and sisters that had real specific, you know, one's the clown, one's the troublemaker, one's the rebel. One's the absolute resistor, mm -hmm. um, and they they all have roles, but I did not want one, and I wanted to be left alone. Even to the time I left that house, I just simply wanted to be left alone. That's that's it's really interesting that that's your your viewpoint on that because I was thinking so when you had you had moved from from Denver to Wyoming. To like out into the woods, is that is was am I getting those? Yes, you moved from inner city to almost like isolated oh, with your family, complete isolation. And it, it almost seems like most of your most of your life leading up to that point, 
you were you were involved with you know the big beer time or the big business beer server you were involved oh, yeah. with like the family man you were um you always had you know a lot of a big family dynamic and stuff like that you were involved in the big city and all these kind of things and it seems like when you were finally you said it was at the age of 37 yes yeah so at like the age of 37 after seeking that isolation at such a young age and wanting to kind of be a little bit more introspective with yourself, you had arrived at a point where you had not found that sense of identity yet. And when you were finally faced with the isolation, you had a huge identity crisis. And it almost, it almost, it, it almost sounds like it was world shattering for you. Totally, totally. Because I had spent the last 10 years saying, okay, um, now I know who I am. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not, you know, the rock and roll guy of my youth or the performance artist that I was in my, in my early uh, informative years, then um, this is who I identify with as now. And that is just somebody that's just really pleased with being, you know, the, the, the bud man, mm-hmm. basically I had this and it was fun and it was a challenge, but yet it was a sense of accomplishment in that mm-hmm. and being a part of that sort of team, if you will. Um, and then when I was alone, yeah, it was a total, as you had said or alluded to an I total identity crisis Mm -hmm. total identity crisis and when I was faced with that um it was it was uh mind shattering I did not know how to handle um a wife a two-year-old in the woods as a backwoodsman and um it was a difficult life, man. It was difficult. Mm-hmm. We're talking northern Wisconsin. There is a ton of snow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you're always working all summer long to chop wood and do the homesteader thing. And this is constant, constant work. And, um, and you know, and if something goes wrong... Mm-hmm. which in our house it it did quite frequently because we were off the grid also. I didn't mention that part. Mm. Okay, we were off the grid, so we lived totally solar. This is also enormously challenging. You live off of the elements, and if those fail you, which in northern Wisconsin and gray skies constantly, they often do, uh, you have neither no, you know wind nor sun, then a generator kicks on. If that goes out, which it did, mm-hmm. um, you are up a creek, and you have to be super resourceful, which mm-hmm. I didn't know how to. I'm a city dude, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and this is about the time that, you know, event after event, challenge after challenge kept meeting me. I felt very isolated, very alone mm-hmm. in that. And, uh, and that's when the wheels came off. Mm-hmm. That is really when the wheels came mm-hmm. off. Yeah. And it was it was like, whew, oh, my God. And the responsibility, it just was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it almost seems like there was, there was such a crazy dichotomy between 
the way that you were raised and like crow at 37 you know there was just like that crazy just be you know being so involved in the dramatics and the theatricals and the the family and all that kind of stuff and then you were just left with almost nothing plus struggle plus you know it it was it's it's very interesting it is interesting and i i think what i was doing and i i know as i look back what i was doing is trying to find myself yeah i was there's no doubt about that i was doing theater to hide behind a series of um you know playwrights where i could hide behind an identity Mm -hmm. a mask if you will and um perform and i was fearless in doing so because i was it was just not me and i didn't have to be me because i really didn't know who that was but at least i could get close enough to that existence Mm -hmm. to where i could allow the audience to see a little of me Mm -hmm. and i would let that sort of penetrate out without really piercing that um so that was always my game with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's what, honestly, not, not to, to toot my own horn, but I think that's what made me so good at mm-hmm. such a young age is mm-hmm. because I could really push that and realize and almost feel that rhythmically in, in, in acting. And I had some very, very big roles, and it was awesome mm-hmm. And uh, at, at theater works, you know. Uh, I got to play Stanley Kowalski of all of all roles. Yeah, it was I mean, my, great. You my, did great too. <laughs> my God, I mean, you know, and I was asked to do uh, play the part of Biff in Long Day's Journey, mm-hmm. and uh, at that time I I was saying no and turned it down. The role of a lifetime, and I turned it down because I wanted to go into my music mm. because by that time I was writing. And I was doing my own stuff. And that was more important in, in terms of expressing myself, if that makes sense. So Absolutely. Always Absolutely. trying to reach out and hide behind a persona, yet express myself. Trying to find that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I, I guess that, you know, that's the... It, it almost... It's a little confusing, but... Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. And then I think I... You, you, you're, the behavioral patterns that you had throughout your life are very interesting because it almost... Going kind of back to like that, that, that isolation that kind of broke you, it almost seems like you had... You were always trying to seek isolation, like through your entire life and I think that when you started to drink it seems like you even started to to crave that even more and it was like I you know it was like at the first part of your life you weren't allowed isolation and then when you were finally allowed it it kind of broke you and then when you isolated again it broke you again and you got sober so it's almost like through your entire journey is all about isolation and like the different things that Crow learns about himself when he's by himself. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that does. I, I've never thought about it that way. That's really fascinating. 
But it is true. Yeah. There's been a time of of going out and going in. Yeah. And that's one important thing, uh, jumping to modern day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you asked, what are some of the, the important elements of my sobriety program now? Mm-hmm. Is I learned in my sobriety, and this is a huge one, and you've touched on it now, so I need to address this to our listening audience, the importance of understanding those energies within you mm-hmm. and knowing when enough is enough and you need self-care mm-hmm. and you need time alone. You need time to refuel. And that is imperative for me. With all the work that I do in an outward way, there is a time when I'm a, I am off work. I'm off mm-hmm. and I am off. And I am alone. Mm-hmm. And I still live alone to this day. And I, I, I just need that time to refuel the battery. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to put that in an imagistic way than to say, I need to refuel my battery. And I spend that time responsibly in doing just that. Mm-hmm. Not in frivolous, you know, um, gaming or or watching TV or anything, I, to me, that's, that's, that's always seemed really, really. Oh, them's fighting words for Kyle. Oh, 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 oh. I probably what the hell did you say of... about video games? Probably <laughs> 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 for a lot of, maybe uh, a lot of our listening audience. But mm-hmm. for me, it was, it, it is incredibly important to my program that I separate myself mm-hmm. from that the world in that regard. And I just need me and I need to go for my isolation and I need to go for my time and alone, preferably in nature. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, got to walk. I got to go for a run, whatever it is, mm-hmm. but I need my time to refuel. I, the other thing that you've told me is that you usually spend a lot of time in silence too. Don't you? A lot. A lot. What does that do for you? It just, I think, brings me, it's the monastic in me. And for anybody that doesn't understand that term, it's a monk. Um, um, And that's incredibly important to me because it brings, you cannot hear the outside world until you have reached a point of stillness within you and it's an it's an um it's almost poetic yeah it's like Mm -hmm. you take a bowl you know the uh, ancient monks you know there's a uh, there's a parable sort of a story about that where they shake up a a a bowl of muddy water and it's like what do you see well i see mud well you have to sit with it for a while until all the silt and all the crap settles to the bottom before you really can see clearly mm. all the way to the bottom of the mm. bowl you have to get to the still water and you have to get to stillness within yourself before you can start to listen truly to yourself and and you know zone the outside world <laughs> zone the world out yeah. really before you know who you are and that's become incredibly uh, important part of an integral part of my program for sure well that's awesome man that's awesome i have 
I got one more big question on here. Oh, God, Kyle. And this is it's kind of, I mean, I know this is probably relevant to everyone sitting here. So, what you had mentioned when you had finally had your, you were isolating and you were drinking, uh, your life was really just in the shitter. You had gotten to that point where you had sat up on your sofa and you had said the world selfish. selfish. Mm. So my question is working with addicts, working with children in recovery, you know, adolescents and stuff like that. Do you think that a starting point for most people is selfishness? Because that was for me, for sure, is that one of the things at my bottom that made me want to change was when I realized how selfish I was, and it sounds like it was the same for you. Yes, but that there sort of comes with a for a forgiving caveat to that because it's not as simple as that. Um, there's a reason we're selfish, and we're hiding and we're protecting. Mm-hmm. Something very, very important. And what is that something? Uh, we have to come to that. And there's there's a reason for that protection mm-hmm. of selfishness. I mean, greatest guy, Crow, has always been the, the most congenial, Mr. Congenial. Alan will attest to this. I'm always Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. But... I meant nobody nobody any harm, you know, but I was selfish nonetheless, mm-hmm. very selfish. And there was a reason that I had grown to be that way as I was cloister hiding. I was hiding and I was protecting something that I didn't understand. And that component that we don't understand about ourselves is the trauma, the, the deep, deep traumas that uh, we think are going to, uh, that are manifesting, that we think are, if exposed, they're going to break me. And um, we have to just take responsibility. There's the, no other way around that. To, to re- first recognize it, and then that I'm hiding, and come out of hiding. And that is one scary place for mm-hmm. anybody out there struggling in in uh, recovery, we do not want to come out of hiding. I mean, really, bro, this is how we live our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what all addiction is, is a form of, of hiding. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's cowardice. It just means you don't know. And just as your story... You had mentioned, and one of the first questions I asked you was, you always had this sense about you through your story of, of almost the plane, the big plane of addiction landing mm-hmm. to where you had cracks in your reality, mm-hmm. and, and, and it broke through, and you said, man, this is wrong, mm-hmm. and this is not me. And those are those moments where, where we become vulnerable, and th- that is something we get a taste of 
in our addiction. Mm-hmm. We know this is wrong. It's just so I know why I need to stop doing this. I just don't know how. Mm-hmm. And um, furthermore, how is it going to look if I lift this veil? Mm. And 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 what is what is it like? And now I have to step into something that I'm not familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, which is the mystery, and it's and the uncertainty of, and that is more frightening than doing what I've always done. Mm-hmm. And that was the part to me that I just couldn't imagine mm-hmm. a life other than living in my my skin. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. I sit on the couch and I drink night and day for a week or two and, you know, pass out. And this is what it's come to. And I, I just can't imagine a life outside of this anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's scarier than, than to, to take on the selfishness. That's, that's more frightening mm-hmm. is what will it look, look like? You know, does that answer that question? With yeah. Any? Yeah. I think relativity. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I don't know, like the, I mean, it, it, it would be so easy to sit here and say, okay, we're all selfish. Yes, we are from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. But we have to get inside that just for a second. Well, uh, and say, yeah, okay, there's no other way to, to describe it as other than selfish, but there's a reason you're being selfish. No, absolutely. And, and you're I, hiding. And you're, and yeah. Yeah, I think the, the thing I'm really, I think the, the, the learning psychologist in me is, is worry, is kind of thinking about what that breaking point is for most people. And I think, because I just know, I know, I just know for me personally, my breaking point was that realization of how selfish I was being, and, and truly being faced with that that vulnerable fact about myself. Okay, yeah, I do understand that, and yeah. I think that is the component, that is the piece that everybody has to get to, mm-hmm. because that also is the the piece within everybody. Mm-hmm. That really is what we we describe as the sulfur, the yeah, fire. Absolutely, it lights that fire. And some say, well, it lights the fire under your ass and makes you get off the couch and start doing it and and making this happen. But it's also got to come from within you, a different place of utter, just, just anger. Yeah, I guess there's no other way to describe it, but it manifested in me in such a disgust and anger within myself. Yeah, not at myself in a shameful way. This is important to understand. It didn't come at me in a shameful way. It's it came at me with an inspiring way that said, "You're better than this." Mm. And what tells me so is. Look back on all of your lived personal experiences. You have so many aha beauty moments in your life mm-hmm. that have, have where you have 
you've done so much, either for others, you have talents, you have skill, you have, you are a walking piece of art. So get off your ass, crow, and make it happen. Mm. And uh, shine like you're supposed to shine. And it was angry. It was anger. Kyle, there's no other way to describe that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was pretty, pretty pretty disgusted with myself, man. Yeah, that I had to like allow <laughs> myself to get so far down. Mm-hmm. And when I was laying in that detox bed, I started owning that stuff. And I was in the midst of my shakes and everything else, bro. And, and I said, man, do not let me forget this moment mm. because this is what I'm capable of. And yeah. I looked around in that room and I saw the company I kept in that moment. And I said, this is mine. Yeah. And this is what is how, 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 uh, how bad it can get. And, uh, this is not who I am period. And, uh, you started to take accountability for your shit pile. Total <laughs> accountability yeah. for that. There we go with that shit pile. Yeah, dude. that shit pile. You, you started know, crawling I, up through your own shit and standing I, on top of it. <laughs> I really did. I started owning yep. it then. I climbed on top of my own shit, mm-hmm. and uh, I started to. I but I didn't know. Still didn't know how. And that's this is the important part too. Is this is where we need community, and this is where we need mentors, uh, guides, teachers, sponsors. Uh, somebody smarter than me mm-hmm. that could say, okay, this grab you, mm-hmm. you know, by the, by the short hairs and say, all right, buddy, this is where you're at and this is what you need. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, if, you know, if we don't go, if, if they don't find us, then we need to seek them out. Mm-hmm. Somebody that holds our feet to the fire. And mm-hmm. I sure did. And, uh, yeah, it took total accountability. For sure. To get on top of my shit pile. And the view's much better up here and it doesn't stink. <laughs> As much. As much. As much. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Crow, for everything. You bet. Thank you so thank much you. for sharing your story. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope it helps. Did you have anything, Alan? No, I'm just glad that he actually took the journey. Yeah. Cause it was it was it was looking. You rough. were kind of like holding his hand through some of well, it. Sounds yeah. like, and I enabled <laughs> I enabled him by having a keg of beer twenty feet from his oh my from gosh. his uh, bedroom door. For, yeah, for the six five or six months he stayed with us. Yeah, so. it was pretty pretty convenient at that time. Alan yeah. in the master brewery is, and you mm-hmm. know, uh, but yeah, it was it was. Uh, he Alan did see a lot. He's known mm-hmm. me since we were young lads in, in our first band 40, together. Forty years. Almost forty years. Oh my gosh. He's walked this journey. Didn't see the one in Wisconsin. Yeah. He uh, went AWOL for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah. I managed. Oh my so god. I one did, of our mutual he... friends would occasionally hear from him or try to reach out. And, uh-huh. and uh he said it was like uh you know, trying to find someone in the heart of darkness. Oh my was just gosh! In his own little world. Out yeah, there, so. yeah. Oh, but wow. but you did get get a, a taste of crow full barrel once I was uh, living uh, under your roof and and uh, those were some rough years, man. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Yeah, you know, like it was hard to see. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And it was hard to. Uh, you know, not keep enabling, and we finally got to the point where I'm like, we can't 
you can't do this. Yeah. So. And what's miraculous, another thing about this too, is that during the time that I was sobering up, I spent all my time between ESM, my apartment, and AA. A little triangle. And I never went outside that. If I did, I would come over and visit Alan and Phoebe. Well, during the time that I'm sobering up, I'm having this mind expansion time of just going on YouTube and mm-hmm. and looking at psychologists and spiritual speakers one after another. And, you know, that's the beauty of YouTube these days. It just links you to, well, if you like this, then you'll like this person. And they just kept linking me out. So my world became endless of education and knowledge that I was hungry for. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time I was going through mine, Alan seemed to be going through his as well. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, yet not not really too much in touch. And it was yeah. just really yeah. wild. Mm-hmm. And what I would experience and I would come across, mm-hmm. I would start describing to Alan, and Alan would, you know, say, well, what you're talking about is what I've always said. It's yeah. stoicism. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I yeah. stumbled on all these different, you know, uh, motifs and all these different modalities of psychology and ancient thought. And and then I would come to Alan, and he'd say, what you're, what you're describing is this. So he was wrapping more language <laughs> around it. At the same yeah. time, and it was really wild how you were on that journey yeah. while I was on They were similar but different. Yeah. So, similar. like, yeah. Chris's is more like woo-woo, spiritual, <laughs> and mine is more like I'm going to read a book and... Do breath work. Do breath work, do mindfulness, mm-hmm. you know, do the... Not worry about the woo-woo side, the spiritual side mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's slowly crept in, you know, I mean, I was an unrepentant atheist forever, <laughs> you know, and you know, there's still times, I mean, I mean, Chris, you and I have, we had a conversation once when you stopped by the brewery once and you said you were having doubt. And I said, well, you know, didn't Jesus have some doubt too at one point? <laughs> you know, I mean, don't, yeah. don't, I'm no biblical scholar, so maybe he didn't. Well, it's, so, it but, is the flip side coin to faith. I mean, yeah. right. you know, I, so there you have it. I, without one, you can't have the other. Right. So, yeah. so yeah. So it was a, uh, it was, it was a good bouncing things off each other. Like that's a good way to learn. You know, he would come to me with like, I'm struggling with this, and I'd be mm-hmm. like, huh. And then I'd be like, hey, what do you, you know, I'm struggling with this. What do you, you know? And he'd be like, oh, you should watch this video. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it it was symbiotic. I mean, yeah. it was a, it was a similar path. I mean, my my depths of drinking were nothing in the big picture. No, I don't like, know. We'll dude. talk about my journey, but mm-hmm. I drank out of boredom. I mean, completely. Which yeah. is great, which is right. a great backdrop to R2. Right. Uh-huh. It's totally different. Yeah, I mean, I had tons applicable. of you know, obviously we're going to touch on all the crap I dealt with growing up and and you know, trauma and all that, but I mean, I drank cuz I was bored. And I, I don't remember who it was. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said, "There maybe he drinks to make other people interesting." So right. that would be me. Yeah, I go to the bar, totally you know, five you. or six nights a week, and I'd be sitting with these like, you know, Neanderthals. And hey, nothing wrong with that because I have more D- Neanderthal DNA than 
90% of the people in the world. <laughs> I had it checked, so I'm not going to bash on the Neanderthals. But anyhow, you know, I'd be sitting there talking to these people, and it would be these, like, terrible conversations. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, I need another beer. <laughs> Give me another beer. And by the time, you know, I'm like, you know, three sheets to one, I'm like, well, this person isn't a retard. So, you know, it, 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 and it, it, so anyhow. Well, when we, when we do get to your story, too, here's also a tie, is that at one point I did come over and visit you, and it seemed like it was overnight, but I know it wasn't. It was many months it had to be, but I came over, and it, out of nowhere, Alan and Phoebe both had, like, lost 200 pounds yeah, yeah. and we're trimmed down so and really crazy. combined yeah and I, you know I and, I, and I said yeah. what the heck did you guys what have you been what journey <laughs> right. have you been on right. so I'm really anxious to hear yours yeah no that'll be good so no that's that's I'm I'm excited for Alan's story too because I don't know you very well no so I'm no. gonna learn everything about you potentially, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> 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 depending yes yeah, we're good. Well, we, uh, yeah, yeah. We know what we got to do. Yeah, I think we got to do some gratefuls. Oh, I think boy. we got to do some gratefuls. Absolutely. Um, I'm grateful for you, Crow, and you. I'm grateful for both Alan and Crow today. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's. It's definitely. It's a. It's a point of vulnerability, and it's a. It's a brave, courageous thing to to be able to speak into your authentic self and i'm grateful that you were you were willing to do that absolutely thanks for, for listening today. yeah Thank you. absolutely um i am grateful oh goodness i'm grateful just some small i'm grateful that i've been sleeping well lately there was a there was a i've been in moments in my life where i haven't slept for days and so being able to get a seven eight hours of sleep is and wake up and not feel like a pile of garbage is fantastic for me. And um, I am grateful that I kind of have a chill week ahead of me. I have some schoolwork I got to do and some, uh, I have to go get a passport and stuff. And nothing super crazy. I get to, I've been kind of busy these last, this last week. And so I need a little bit of self-care time and I'm grateful that I am finally going to be allowed to have some of that self-care time in the next over the good. next couple of days nice mm-hmm. yeah good very good all right well I, i'll go next so i'm grateful that uh, chris moved back it's been a few years now but it was really cool to have him back having not seen him for a long time and uh the friendship that's blossomed and I love the guy. I love both you guys. Mm-hmm. I don't love you as much because I don't know you as much, guys. Fair enough. <laughs> 30, years, 30, years, 30 years. 30 years is, you know, it'll yeah. deepen the love. That's the stoic in him. <laughs> exactly. Easy. Easy yeah. now. So, no, it's been, it's been uh, great. It's been great to watch uh, the transformation, um, you know. Uh, it, was, it was rough. It was rough. It was rough to watch. You know, mm-hmm. I said that before, but it really uh, was heartbreaking, you know. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm glad he's back healthy, Yep. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sharing his story, For doing sure. good work. Um, you know, every time I, I, I talk to him, I feel really guilty that 
I'm just like this dude who hangs out and does stupid shit and doesn't really contribute oh, no. to the world. But in my own way, I'm, I'm trying, you know, and maybe well, whatever. It is what it is. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I'm glad that I had my three-day without methylene blue, and I'm back on it today because hmm. it does, hmm. after those th- third day, you're like back to kind of like baseline. And uh, I'm not recommending this for anyone. Seek research it if if you're ever interested in it i don't want anyone taking this that's on a maoi or ssri and it can hurt you but um it was nice today i took it and i'm like (laughs) (laughs) give me a quick quick synopsis of what it is well methylene blue is a dye um that that was discovered to be a really good antioxidant uh it helps your mitochondria it, it just has a vast amount of um health benefits main one being for me is increased flow state increased focus focus um yes. incre- and, and good focus like if i'm doing a task i'm very linear like if i don't take the methylene blue i'm like all over the place like if i'm working on a car i go back to the toolbox like 50 times if i don't but if I have this, I'm like, all right, what do I need? And I'll have 90% of it figured out. So to me, beneficial. Um, other people I know who have taken it, beneficial. So but so it made me happy today to do my three days off, 10 days on kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, you know, as much as the dogs were annoying, I'm grateful. I used to look at the, all three of them. I'm like, they're cute, and uh, <laughs> I love them. So yep. uh, the puppy had brought back the kennel cough, so Tuna dog was bar- uh, coughing for about an hour at 2 a.m., and we've never let a dog sleep in the bed, but she sleeps in the bed, so she's just coughing in my face. And, <laughs> you know, she's learned a new trick. Yeah, like, so... Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't look at my sleep numbers last night, but I actually feel like I slept. That's good. You know, so nice. the last, you know, year of Milka, the brown dog that we put down, you know, it was getting up a few times a night to make sure she hadn't pooped in the house, get her outside. Then I had a couple of weeks with no dogs I had to worry about, and I slept like a baby. <laughs> and now we got a baby dog who's making me not sleep like a baby. But I actually <laughs> feel like I, I slept last night. So there's a big yes. plus. Anyhow, all right, yeah, that's my three. <laughs> that's I'm sticking excellent. To them. Well, that's my grave. First off, all of you for listening to my story, mm-hmm. just to to listen, to be a part of it. Uh, that 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 I've shared with you. I don't do that ever, but in <laughs> this case, it's 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 it was really important and it was great. Um, and I hope it does help. And uh, but thanks for listening to that and going down memory lane with me on that. But um, I get I'm grateful for health. Man, I feel good. Despite you know a fluctuating mood that might go up and down here and there, I can handle that. But boy, I've got health, mm-hmm. and I'm really that's that's the core of staff. All right, good to go. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I've had a wonderful time off of work and I'm, it's been great. 
I've cherished that. I, you know, enjoyed it for the most part. It was some dark, dark uh, alone times there in the old crow brain. But we got through those, and uh, I'm looking forward to going back into, uh, into work. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, because I enjoy that too. Mm-hmm. So I just love kind of where I'm at. I don't know. There's kind of no, really no complaints. And everything is just really going well. Family's doing real well. And mm-hmm. so everything's right where it should be. Good for you, man. Yeah. And Kyle, you're podcast is just awesome and uh really grateful for this opportunity and this venue this is super cool it's a good spot it is a good Mm -hmm. spot i opened the heater vent so it wouldn't be so cold because it was cold in here oh yeah it definitely was if we we have some guests you know we don't want to freeze them out (laughs) we got some coming yeah Yeah, we got some stuff i don't want to talk about it all right so let's uh wrap it up because uh we're closing on two total hours here all right thank you all thank you yeah thank you everyone for listening all right who's got the bowl kyle pass me the bowl